Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying, raising, and investing capital for MedTech startups. In this episode, our guests, Keith and Kevin Kalmus from Nested Knowledge and I discuss how they took the problems they encountered from their first company and spun it into another company, how they are tackling systemic literature review and meta-analysis as a process, the issue with clinical data storage, lessons they learned along the way in their first company, how to realize when you are not the best person to run your company anymore, various failure mode that they have seen through interacting with other startups, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Keith and Kevin Kalmus. And Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for the listeners uh, tuning in, um, we we do have a little bit of issue while recording because Kevin is in a beautiful spot uh, in Idaho and was really showing off his view right before we we hit record here. And uh, but but anyways, we'll make do with it. Um, so so Keith, let's start with you, and then and then Kevin. Um, you can go after that, but just give the listeners a brief introduction to, to who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm Keith Kalmus. I'm the president of Nested Knowledge. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, never had a real job, if you will. Started my first company out of college um, when I was still a senior at the University of Minnesota. Um, that was a contract research company, laser focused on the neurovascular device space, uh, providing technical writing, uh, statistical analysis, grant writing, regulatory and clinical consulting, really anything having to do with research in the neurovascular space we would do. That led to Kevin and I spinning a device out of the Mayo Clinic that our father, Dr. David Kalmus, had invented with his trainee, uh, Dr. Waleed Brunjikji. Um, that was called the Boss Balloon Guide Catheter. We got to see every stage of the medical device development process from identifying an unmet clinical need to applying for regulatory clearance, uh, you know, obviously developing specs, seeing it through the engineering process. We ran a clinical study, uh, 50 patients enrolled, launched those two devices commercially, and then finally exited that to a strategic about a year ago. Uh, those dual experiences really informed what we're doing now at Nested Knowledge, uh, which is a, a web-based clinical evidence uh, synthesis, um, literature review and meta-analysis platform. We got to see how companies leverage clinical outcomes data from the inside and the outside. We were the people providing 
that clinical data and those analyses on the clinical data, and we were the people using it. And it's really critical to every stage, right? Uh, when you're identifying an unmet clinical need, we started with this meta-analysis that Kevin and I have said a thousand times, Brinjicti et al. De demonstrating the improved outcomes of, of patients uh, as a result of using a balloon guide catheter. You know, you use it in, at that stage, you use it when you're, you know, specking your device, you use it when you're designing a clinical study, you use it when you are applying for regulatory clearance and marketing your device. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of that ends, ends with duplicative work. A lot of that ends with uh, timeline delays. So Kevin and I took that, that joint experience uh, uh, and are using it to, to build nested knowledge. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Keith. Uh, Kevin, brief intro. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Keith covered a lot of what we've done. Uh, in effect, I uh, three time entrepreneur starting out. I, uh, I liked helping doctors write papers. I'll put it as simply as that. Um, scientific research is, is really the, it's the mechanism that we use to go from, Hey, patients have a problem to, we want to treat them. And the infrastructure there is really hard to understand if you're, if you're far away from it. Uh, there's a lot of work that goes into going from patient outcomes research to recommended therapies and jumping in was, was just, uh, was just a great experience because doctors doing research is, is a great, is a great pain point for an entrepreneur. And so doctors doing research, they don't have time to write. That's how he got started, wrote a lot of medical articles and wrote some grants along, uh, uh, along with it. That really helped us when we actually did jump in and design the device. You can imagine that as uh, uh, coming from the outside, coming from medical research backgrounds, the engineering side of things was was really opaque at the start. But but having that infrastructural background, understanding the process that that goes from unmet clinical need to uh, to an actual therapy, all, all the steps in between, that was really the only way we could actually develop a device all the way from prototype to uh, you know quality testing to uh, to FDA submission to launch. And then really, I think of us now as as reflecting on our journey as both suppliers in, in medical research, so people who help do research and consumers of research, as in you know de de developing a device and using the research to inform what we should actually build, what would actually help patients. And now we're looking back at that and saying, okay, what support didn't we have? And, and that's really the, the question Keith and I are trying to bite off right now in this knowledge. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, you know, every time I talk to entrepreneurs on the podcast, um, I, I, I always ask for, hey, you know, what did you, what was your pain point, especially with the serial, serial entrepreneurs, right? What's your pain point with the first company? And then how did you address that later on? Uh, yours is unique because you took one of the pain points from your first company and spun it into another company, right? So um, maybe dive a little bit more, Keith, you started to, to scrape at it a little bit, but maybe add a little more depth to it of, of nested knowledge, the issue and, and how you're solving that issue. Absolutely. So the pain point from Superior Medical, the first company was companies duplicate work when it comes to the clinical literature because they have all of these different departments that leverage the same evidence over and over and over again throughout the product life cycle but there is no centrally organized 
database where they can go to recover and improve upon past work. So we would get these duplicative requests from massive medical device companies. The regulatory affairs team would come to us and say, hey, can you, can you review the literature for a CER? And, and we would say, oh, we, we actually did that literature review for your clinical team a year ago. Do you, do you save work? Oh, well, you know, it's out of date and uh, it needs to be updated in their new analyses and it's, it's in a different format. So, so just do it, right? And as much as I love uh, <laughs> repeat business, we just said there has to be another way. And then we got to experience that ourselves in the medical device company. So nested knowledge is tackling systematic literature review and meta-analysis as a process. And then the storage and analysis and interpretation of that clinical outcomes data in a novel form. So I'll take both of those in, in sequence. Right now, less than 15% of clinical literature is in an up-to-date review. That's mostly because of the proliferation of evidence, which is great for decision makers and, and patients. That means you can make more informed decisions about your care, but it's not great for the reviewers because they have more and more evidence to assimilate into these reviews. So nested knowledge makes that process easier, faster, and most importantly, living. So that instead of putting out a new meta-analysis, Every six months, you have one centralized, living, dynamic meta-analysis. And that can be published in a journal. It can be in a database that a medical device company uses. It can be in whatever form you want. The most important thing is that it's living. So the second piece that we're tackling is how this data is then consumed, right? So you, you built that meta-analysis, great. How do people get access? to the underlying data and to the underlying studies. And right now the gold standard <laughs> uh, in, in you know, this multi-billion dollar industry is a PDF. Right. <clears throat> right, it's, it's a PDF, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you have hundreds of thousands of dollars per review that go into these really intelligent, highly educated people spending dozens or hundreds of hours conducting complex analyses to type it into a Word document and then convert to a PDF and then put it in a SharePoint or a journal and then it never gets updated, right? So our solution to that is migrate it out of the PDF, put it into an interactive web-based visual that allows for point and click queries of what the underlying studies and data say, right? Just put it in a user configurable interface where you can do some very simple statistic uh, statistical analysis, um, find the underlying studies, search for the for the evidence you're really looking for. It really, the, the best way I can say it is, instead of taking the author's word for it, let the reader determine what evidence he or she is going to consume. Okay. Um, wow. Fascinating. So, so I'm, I'm curious, I, I know I don't, I don't want to repeat anything, but, but Kevin, just before we move on from that and I ask additional questions, do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, mostly I'd love to get into the story of getting there. I think he's given us a good, I, I think his problem statement's perfect. Uh, but, but I, I, I can probably give some background on how we actually encountered this and why, why us, uh, and then why we picked this problem. So Keith and, Keith and I, 
started right out of college, uh, helping doctors write papers and then help companies write papers. And a lot of those papers just involved referencing other papers as simply as that. Many of them were trying to systematically review the literature. So throw all of the evidence from, from already published studies into a, um, into a single publication that summarizes the evidence and then can also uh, give an analysis of, of the total evidence on that question, right? Does this device help patients? We really actually, because we were, we were entrepreneurs and, and because we were coming from, I'd say, the, the outside of the, the space, we felt like we must be behind. We thought that everyone else was running ahead with, you know, we, we read a lot about AI and, and healthcare and, and uh, uh, big data. So we thought that we must be really behind in how we were saving the data from published literature, which is really, again, the gold standard of, of decision-making in clinical medicine because we were using Excel sheets and we felt really bad uh, about, about being behind. So I went and did an internship actually at the NIH. Um, it was really focused on, on data management. I was actually researching brain computer interfaces. So Elon Musk and, you know, uh, making monkeys uh, <laughs> respond to teleprompters. Uh, but but the research basis of it was how do we actually structure the data on 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 brain computer interfaces? And the NIH had me do it the exact same way I'd been doing it myself, right? Uh, uh, they were using an Excel sheet to just track uh, uh, publications based on you know a user typing in, like literally typing in a publication name, uh, maybe copying in an ID, and then gathering data. And so when we realized that the NIH was was at our level, <laughs> and by at our level I mean really really behind in, in data management there. That's when we started to say, hey, there, there might be there might be a, an opportunity here, not not just a problem, but an opportunity to provide that. If, if even the NIH is not going to offer uh, or not even going to use uh, uh, a structured data entry system or living updatable databasing for, for clinical evidence, which again is, is really high value data, uh, we should probably build that infrastructure. That's really how we came to it. It was, it, the reason that that we borrowed a pain point from our initial company is because our company was was assisting with and and basically sitting in the chair of uh, uh, a researcher. So if we're sitting at their if we're sitting at our computer just as they do, searching PubMed, and we are similarly confused about what helps and what doesn't, and no one else in in the space has has addressed it, we we really felt like it was a it was a it was not just our pain point. This is a social pain point. This is this is a medical public pain point just in terms of how do we actually communicate about what works and then what evidence do we use to support that? So, so going from, you know, being small time entrepreneurs to being, you know, device development to getting our, our first company actually through the, uh, uh, our first device through the FDA and then seeing what the NIH actually has to offer. It was just sort of a culmination of seeing so many different people gathering the same data uh, and then, and then presenting it literally the same way that we had as, as recent college grads. So it was a wake up call for us uh, uh, about where the field was, not just about where we were. Okay. So is it, is, is, so, so, so you have nested knowledge now is the, the, your product, your solution, is that commercial now, or is it still pre-commercialization? It's totally commercial. We have CROs, uh, pharma consultants, medical device consultants, medical device companies utilizing it. Um, I, our largest user base is independent academic, uh, physician researchers. That's, that's the majority of our accounts. And the reason we focused on them first is they set the standard, right? It, it, 
possibly ironically, academia actually is the first mover in this, right? You know, you think in, in most fields, industry moves and then academia follows. But in this one, the academics determine what the gold standard of evidence is. Then industry moves after that. So our number one goal originally was get researchers using the platform. Not only because that would give us credibility, but they also help us make it better, right? If you have an independent army of, of physician researchers conducting their systematic literature reviews in your platform, they're going to tell you what they don't like, <laughs> right? They're going to they're gonna communicate to you, hey, it would be really nice if I had this feature. Or, Can you change this? So I think they, they played a, a major role in helping us build the product to where it is now. Um, the product now is fully commercial. It is available to anyone who wants to license it or utilize it for clinical evidence management, regulatory reviews. Um, you know, there's a lot of new regulations coming out of Europe and, and Japan and even the FDA that are increasingly demanding literature as part of that submission. So it's well-timed um, from, from a market point of view. And it, it's, yeah, it's commercial grade. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense with MDR. Um, you know, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's pretty clear why, uh, how well timed that is, especially from the MDR standpoint. Um, so are you finding, so, so, so for me, it makes sense why doctors would use it. It makes sense why a CRO would use it if they're helping with MDR submissions or what have you. It makes sense from a regulatory standpoint, what value would a startup get from this, right? If, if, or, or an accelerator or a conglomerate of startups, right? Maybe they go in together. But, but if, if, if I have, let's say Project MedTech had an accelerator, we have 10 companies, um, you know, we're, we're kind of working through identifying issues within the healthcare space. Is there value for us to be using this platform? That's a, a absolutely, absolutely. We, yeah, I was going to say, uh, and Kevin, please, please jump in in a sec here. We utilized the same meta-analysis, Brinjikji et al., throughout the entire life cycle of Marblehead. And the most important step was the identification of an unmet clinical need. Because if you want to sell out to a strategic, what they're going to care about is unmet clinical need. If you are trying to commercialize and you're going to sell to physicians, they're going to care about unmet clinical need, right? They're going to say, this is what's missing from my practice. This is what would help improve patient outcomes. The best way to identify an unmet clinical need is to conduct a meta-analysis, to go to the literature, see what therapies work. And then after that, you can go and you can interview physicians, do some customer discovery and say, well, this works, this therapy works, this device works, why aren't you using it? And then you can build your specifications around why they say they don't use it. But the cool thing about being a startup is you start with the unmet clinical need, you have this living library of evidence, and then you don't have to redo that work when you submit for MDR, like you mentioned. Yeah, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to review the literature eventually. You might as well have that knowledge from the beginning. Yeah, it makes total sense. Kevin, what do you have to add there? I, I wanted to take this from the perspective of your startup CEO, right? They're they're coming through your accelerator. Let's get into that CEO's head. So I'm that CEO, I'm, I'm looking around at uh, the, the 
medical industry and figuring out where I want to develop something, whether, you know, I might be a doctor and I'm spinning it out of a university because I noticed it in my practice, but I want to see if it's generalizable. Maybe I worked at a big device company and I noticed an innovation that was, uh, uh, or a space that was not getting enough innovation. However, you came to your initial concept, pretty much, you know, I'm going to have the same questions to start out. It's going to be, uh, or really the same needs. It's going to be, how am I going to prove that this is a good idea to investors? How am I going to prove that this is a good idea to a strategic uh, who's, who's going to acquire me? How am I going to get uh, excited engineers? How am I going to get excited you know, medical uh, input? I think all of that actually comes down to, uh, as Keith said, and sorry if we really, really hammer this, but we think startups are really about simple ideas executed well. Identifying and building out your, your unmet need. That's basically saying, how significant is my company, right? So I, I need to put together the set of information that proves that my innovation is actually filling a space, is actually filling a need, is going to be convincing to a doctor, is going to be desirable to a patient. All of that needs to be going from day one, because anyone who I tell the company about, Project MedTech probably asks its accelerator members, uh, right? Investors will 100% ask, you know, not just market size, but what are you actually solving? And, and that's where I, that's where clinical literature comes in just as it, it, it's not just when we, when we say best evidence, we're not, we're not saying that, you know, you, you can't prove something in a Petri dish. What we're really saying is that the final proof is going to be how it works in patients and the space that you're moving into every other, every other uh, therapy that you're displacing is going to have uh, uh, basically a level set of how good they are. Right. If, if you're, we were, we were trying to uh, displace in the stroke industry, right? So let's say I have a stroke device. I need to figure out how good every other stroke device is if I'm going to ever assert that we're going to improve upon it. Uh, and if every stroke device in the space had given, you know, patients great uh, neurological outcomes, you know, uh, led to led to everyone who had a stroke popping out of bed the next day, we'd know that we hadn't defined it correctly and we'd know that there wasn't as much room for us. Uh, we'd be very happy for those patients though, by the way. Uh, so, so from the very start, literally defining what your value add is going to be should come from that. What Keith's talking about is reusing that then, right? You should turn around and say, okay, now that I've proven that, I, I, that I'm filling a space that is needed, you should turn around and actually deploy the same evidence toward the other, the other parts of the company. And, and now I'll take off my CEO hat and put back on my researcher hat and say, and that's the best way to do research. If you're doing you know, capricious sort of one-off uh, uh, searches to try to find evidence to support your claims, I think that sounds a lot more like... Uh, 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 well, uh, it doesn't sound like science to me. It sounds more like uh, lawyering or marketing or, or some other field. If you want to have replicable and transparent evidence that's backing what you're selling, I think that you have to do it that way. You have to use a, a database that gathers evidence systematically, shows how you gather it, and then also shows the outcomes in a way that, uh, that someone can come through and interpret it themselves, figure out if you are actually going to be that value add. So it's it's the starting point, but it's also basically the life cycle of communication about, about what you have to offer. Yeah, a couple points I want to touch on here, Kevin, that you brought up. And and the, the first one is really identifying that unmet clinical need, because a lot of startups uh, miss the boat on that from the early stage. And and there's an episode I quote frequently, but it was it was episode four of, of, of Project MedTech. And by the time this one's released, we're on you know, probably 84, I think. Um, but, but Lance Black from te the Texas Medical Center um, brought up a, a really good point about the unmet clinical need and, and, and being a, not, not just understanding it, 
um, but being a historian of that specific unmet clinical need and, and, and what was used in the past and what is currently being used um, to, to treat this, you know, unmet clinical needs. So I think the more research you can do there, the better. And then I just love the pull for the pull through effect because, um, you know, we're, we're kind of picking on MDR, but, but the MDR to, to prepare for that, it costs a lot of money. And so um, we use the example uh, from my CRO days of not wanting to repeat work on a clinical trial. Right. So so you, you try to get these regulatory endpoints, but you should also probably consider your reimbursement endpoints and 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 maybe what the buyers want to see and insurance companies want to see. Why not get all of that data then? And it's the same thing here. If you're going to do this research, why not pull it through? So um, I, I I love what you guys are doing. Um, and and, you know, a plead ignorance here. I didn't realize how big of an issue it truly was um, because I hadn't really gone through something like this until, you know, the Keith, the, 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 the first time you and I talked. So, so I really appreciate the insight here and I, I hope our, our listeners do as well. Um, before I move on from, from nested knowledge, cause I really want to dive into uh, the, the, the first companies you had here and, and, I think you've actually mentioned a couple of different ones, so I want to get that straight. But but is there anything else on nested knowledge that either one of you want to add? I can hop in. I have one uh, quick thing to say, uh, how people can work with us right now. Keith said we're commercial grade. What he means is if you go to our website, you can create an account immediately, jump in and start lit reviewing in a couple seconds. We just launched a new uh, a new initialization where you can basically come in, you structure your research question. So you come in and say, do balloon guide catheters help stroke patients with respect to mortality? Um, you can run in and actually just start searching immediately uh, right on our site. That's for anyone in, in the world just that they're interested. If you're a scientific researcher, you can drive that all the way through to a publication. I've seen that several journals are now accepting living reviews as, as a publication type. So if you're a scientific researcher, drive that through and, and get a publication that you get public credentials for continuing to be basically the backstop of scientific research communication. If you're more on the, the company side, if you're coming at this from the perspective uh, that I did of, I need to figure out if uh, uh, there's a need for my device and then later I wanna prove that my device works. That's one where I, I think you can you can come in and do your preliminary work and then reach out directly to Keith. Keith loves hearing about uh, uh, the the pain points and the use case and the needs of, of researchers that are supporting a development process because we understand how, how difficult it is and how, how lost you can feel if you don't have an existing process for, for getting that research together. Literally jump in, get started and reach out to Keith as soon as you've defined what your research question is and what you wanna move forward with. Uh, so please, you know, e either side of it, corporate academic, we are really looking for people to uh, use and give feedback and keep growing uh, uh, the, the database that we, that we have of clinical outcomes research. So that, that's, that's, my, that's my call to action on this knowledge. Yeah. Awesome. So, so, um, Kevin and, and, or actually, sorry, for all the listeners, I will have nested knowledge's website in the show notes. So up or down an inch, depending on the platform you're, you're listening to, you can click on that URL and get directly to it. Um, so yeah, so, so, so Keith, you've mentioned a couple, is it two different companies, Marblehead? And is there one more? 
Yeah, yes. Uh, Superior Medical, the oh. first company Kevin and I started. So the contract research and then device and then nested knowledge. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so Superior Medical though is still in existence, but but you and Kevin have taken a step back from running the day to day operations of this. Correct. So we've handed it off to uh, two phenomenal PhDs, uh, Dr. Jill Touche and Ashley Mooneyham. Um, I always say, from a leadership experience, possibly the most important thing in leadership is realizing when you're not the best person for the job anymore and stepping aside. A hundred percent. So, so let's, let's, let's dive into that. Right. So I've met Ashley, uh, via, via phone and, and she's, uh, incredible, right? So she's, she's going to do one of these podcasts. She's going to do a, a happy hour. Um, but, but, you know, from a founder standpoint, I'd love to hear from, from both you and Kevin, you know, what was that conversation like was it was it difficult or was it just you know for the two of you yeah it's, it's a no-brainer hey this just isn't our thing uh you know there's there's better people for this and 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 then how do you go about finding those people did you already know them or was this an active recruitment can you walk us through that process absolutely kevin and i always say that the best people will find you there's a selective mechanism for individuals with activator energy that they will approach you Jill reached out to me randomly over LinkedIn. I had coffee with her. I was like, God, she is competent. <laughs> she would make a great uh, research director. She came on and within a matter of months, she was leading our research team. Uh, I think in terms of that conversation, you know, if you can get past your ego and everyone has an ego, but if you can attempt to be dispassionate and objectively look at your performance versus a team member's performance. It shouldn't be hard to recognize when someone's better at running a research team than you are. Right. Really. Uh, there are objective metrics you can use. You can use financial data. You can use output data. You can use hour per project data and evaluate yourself like you're your own employee. Right. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't assume that just because you started something means you're the best at running it. I, and I, the other thing I'll add to that is it may be an issue of personality. Um, Kevin and I are really good at being novel and creating new systems and coming up with ideas. I don't think we're the best at running them. Jill and Ashley are simply much better at that. So specialize yourself in things you know you're good at and recognize when someone is better at something than you are. That's fantastic advice. Kevin, do you have anything to add there? For sure. I, I think Keith nailed it with how to, how to have people find you and then how to be humble in, in leadership. I'll also say that we we really like working uh, uh, with Ashley and with Jill and many other like really fast up and coming uh, uh, researchers who we just can't wait to hand off more responsibility to. A lot of it's virtual, a lot of it's them independently. So I just wanna plug that uh, uh, we were forced into this by being a remote company. Like we were forced to build systems for communication. We're forced to find people who were so dependable that you didn't have to look over their shoulder as they were working. From that point, we really think of mentorship or, or just like, like communicating with executives, communicating with Jill, communicating with Ashley. We want them to drive what they are uh, uh, noticing as the most important thing for, for our customers, but also what they notice as, as the best capabilities of the team. Um, when the grants division started, I think this is a great example of this. The grants division started out as me 
fast writing grants in like 72 hours for academics who who just needed the outsourcing. And I'm great for that because if you want me to jump in and learn something in 72 hours and then write about it quickly, I, I do think I'm one of the better in the world at that. I don't actually think that's a good, uh, that's, a, that's not a good service. Uh, a, a much better service is set up a system where you don't end up in that 72 hour situation. And so the transition from my leadership of, of the grants team to Ashley's leadership, I think you could really put it as a transition from, you know, uh, uh, learning quickly and assisting as needed, but only as, as sort of jumping in from the outside to build the system from the ground up and then offer not only like helping with the grant writing, but also helping with the structure of the activity. When do you need to do what? Uh, you know, when are, when are these applications due and how far do you have to plan in advance to realistically actually complete it? That sounds, it, it sounds a little bit administrative, but it's actually more about just good planning. And so in that handoff, like being able to see what our team members identify as just so much of a better value add than what we were doing. So much beyond, you know, like the, the fits and starts that we get as entrepreneurs. That's what I really like about this. And that's why I want to hand these things off and, and, and push the boundaries because I do think I should be on the edge uh, writing grants in 72 hours or whatever the next version of that is. And then have uh, uh, the Ashleys of the world truly turn that into something that's of durable value for a lot more people. Yeah, that's um, is, there's a lot of advice in, in what both of you just said. And um, I think it, it, like you said, it just boils down to being humble and then understanding um, what you're good at and what your weaknesses are and, and not being afraid to to you know step up and say hey maybe you know this isn't my role but but this is what i'm good at i, I think you know a lot of if if i take what you guys are describing and i put that towards what a lot of medtech startups go through it's a lot of that founders discussion you know is that founder the right ceo for the entire life cycle of that company maybe most likely not though, right? I mean, most cases you see founders who lead the company eventually take a step back because that's what's best for that company. Um, uh, you know, sometimes they're, they're certainly capable of leading them, you know, maybe all the way from finding it through going public, but, but I would say that's probably more rare. So um, I, I really appreciate the insight here on, on, on what you did at Superior Medical. So, so tell me a little bit more about Marblehead. Um, you know, I, I kind of know um, just because of previous lives, <laughs> but um, I'm curious on on what Marblehead was and, and what you can share in terms of, I, I know you exited that company. Um, you know, can, can you share a little bit there or is that still kind of under wraps? Yeah, I uh, can definitely share our journey. The, the product is, is pending launch. So we'll, we'll be hush hush about the, the exit and the, and, and launch, but the the genesis and development we are very open with because we think it's a great learning experience for us and for anyone who wants to develop a medical device. So Kevin and I were not there at the genesis of the concept. Our our father, Dr. David Kalmus, uh, is at the Mayo Clinic. Um, he and his mentee, uh, Willie Brinjikji, wanted to be entrepreneurs and noticed an unmet clinical need in stroke care, uh, which was that balloon guide catheters prevent 
distal emboli, right, from, from going up into the rest of the brain. They prevent the clot from fragmenting and causing microstrokes. But utilization of balloon guide catheters was extremely low. Probably about a fifth of procedures were using it. So they did a meta-analysis or a systematic review, Brinjicji et al. It's the one I keep bringing up. It was about 2,000 patients. It was really not a very large analysis. Discovered that unmet clinical need. Then they went into customer discovery, which is something I always talk about. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be meeting an unmet need for the customer. And in addition to meeting one for the patient, if you're in medical device. So interview 80 neurointerventionalists and say, hey, you've seen the data, balloon guide catheters prevent distal emboli, improve patient outcomes. Why don't you use one? And we got 80 data points. Why? You know, oh, it doesn't fit with the uh, treatment devices I want. It doesn't, um, it doesn't navigate as well as I want. Oh, I don't like the dimensions. And then you take that data and you turn that into a feature set. So really, the, the first stages of a medical device company shouldn't be going right to the bench to prototype because you might be prototyping something no one wants and meeting user needs that no one cares about. So the, the first two steps are all about data. It's clinical data and then market data. And then you go to the bench. Then you can start designing your device to meet those unmet clinical need and unmet user needs. After that, you know, I, I bet most of our listeners know the process as well as I do. You know, you prototype and then you put it in the hands of users. You say, how can we improve this? And you iterate until you're comfortable with your design. We ended up developing two generations because we forgot to do strategic discovery, which is another form of customer discovery, right? We went to the customers and we said, hey, what are your unmet needs? But we didn't talk to strategics early enough. So this is another point I'll make for, for all you uh, aspiring medical device entrepreneurs. Everyone thinks that people are going to steal their idea. My father likes to say ideas are cheap. Execution is expensive. Nine times out of 10, talking to a strategic early will help you better understand the device they want you to deliver to them. Okay, it's not going to result in them stealing your idea. They are usually busy enough with internal development programs. And if you're really worried, get an NDA in place. So we made the mistake of not talking to the strategic early enough. And we had to build another iteration because their marketing team had figured out that it had to be of a certain dimension, right? So we made a $5 million mistake of not building the right device for a different kind of customer, i.e. the strategic customer from the get-go. So, you know, may, maybe, they, maybe they do steal your idea, right? That, it's, it's, not, it's not a, <laughs> it won't never happen, but you are more likely to fail because you built the wrong device, a non-acquirable device, than, than you would a, a strategic stealing your idea. The last thing I'll add on that point, not to, not to beat a dead horse, but, if that strategic steals your idea, it will probably want, it'll make their competitors want to buy you. Good point. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so Keith, I, this is something that, you know, I'm not on the product development side. 
right? That's not that's not my my area of expertise. I'm not an engineer. Um, but but the first time I got really introduced to how many voices of customer there truly are was a, a, a interview I did on the podcast. It was a three part series with Devin Campbell from Product. And, and if you don't know who that is. Um, you guys should definitely meet because the the, the three of you would, would get along extremely well. But he kind of walked through that breakdown of the importance of all the different voices of customers. And 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 you know, he must have given eight different examples, right? I mean, there were there were those obvious ones, and then there were the ones like you just kind of said about the strategic of, oh wow, I didn't even really think to, you know, get their buy-in that early on or or get their opinion or voice that early on. So, you know, I think what you just walk through um is is incredibly incredibly important. Um and I think can be applied to any other um med tech company. Uh Kevin, I, I know you were going to say something before I jumped in there because I saw you come off mute. So, so what do you have to add to that? No, it's, uh, I, I think your comments comments great there. I'm just going to throw in a quick comment on failure modes. I think that it's a good way to think about startups and it's a good way to think about development, um, especially in the device space. Think about the failure modes of your device and of your company. So, uh, so just talking over the balloon guide catheter, we thought a lot about how does the balloon burst, right? You know, you're building a balloon, you really need to map out all the ways in which the balloon could be, be you know, whether it's a process problem or, or, or whatever it may be. How do you ensure that when a physician is putting this in a patient that the balloon won't have a certain failure mode? Now, the engineers in the space, I uh, understand this a lot better than I do, so I won't condescend at them. But I recommend the entrepreneurs in this space take a similar attitude toward their businesses. Think about the failure modes of a device startup. I can tell you the failure modes that we recognize as much more likely than a balloon popping. Um, the first and, and probably most obvious is running out of money. Um, this is because people plan optimistically. We planned optimistically to start. Um, I, 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 in Elon Musk's biography, one of his um, one of his engineers described him as planning a project based on thinking of how long it would take him to do it, and then mapping that out in twenty four hour sequences of working the entire day until it was done, and that sort of thinking will actually, I think it will destroy a project because it takes away your flexibility. If you don't have enough money to change your idea, you're not going to, you're not going to make it. <laughs> uh, the second failure mode. So I'm actually going through this in the order of, of uh, I, this is, this is both my, my, my experience and an autopsy of hundreds of, of startups that, that I've read about or that I've, um, that I've actually helped with grants. The second most common failure mode is product market lack of fit. And product market lack of fit, what I really mean is you didn't get that voice of customer. You didn't actually listen. <laughs> you developed something that you thought was innovative, but that, again, whether it's the uh, patient benefit wasn't there, the physician interest wasn't there, or the strategic acquisition opportunity wasn't there, you didn't fit with someone that you needed to get your product on the market. So plan pessimistically from the monetary angle and focus almost all of your uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurial energies on making sure that your product actually fits to the market. The, the last, I, uh, the last failure mode that I want to discuss. Yeah. Well, the last failure mode that I, that I want to discuss is, um, the wrong priorities. And, uh, by wrong priorities, I mean, you don't create a list of user requirements that actually says what order you care about them in. 
to feed your product specifications. So sure, you can get your user requirements. For us, it was like needs to fit through an eight French pinnacle sheath, you know, uh, <laughs> needs to be able to inflate the balloon in under, I think, I think we said 10 seconds. And that's a list of really the features that we think are going to meet that product need. If we hadn't prioritized them correctly, you end up basically in an, uh, really an engineering loop, right? You can continue to develop as long as you want toward the perfect device. But I think that if you map from the beginning, you say, these are actually, actually our priorities. And if we hit this and this and that, then, you know, we, we will accept that, you know, our eighth priority feature um, can be built to um, acceptable rather than optimal. And that allows us to have a lot more play with the things that we really care about. Like if we're going to compromise navigability of the device just to get better radio opacity, like our, our list radio opacity is much lower uh, uh, than navigation. We could have compromised the device's performance or we could have put an extra year developing, you know, innovative methods to actually meet all of those product specs. But if you set yourself up to have a hard, uh, uh, a hard problem at every spec level, right? If you have eight hard specs to meet, if you don't understand your priorities and you don't understand the difference between optimal and acceptable, I, I think that's when you get into the engineering loop failure mode. So those are just the three that I'll point out that I think are going to be most impactful and most important for entrepreneurs. Uh, again, I'll say them running out of money, product market, lack of fit and priorities. If you think about those things a lot, I think you're going to do a lot better than if you don't. Awesome. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, look, that is everything. I wanted to cover as I quickly look through my list here and I, I write down things in, in between here. It is in, in closing, we'll start with Keith and, and, and move to Kevin. Is there anything else that, that you wanted to leave the listeners with before we wrap up? I, I'll leave it with a, a thanks uh, to, to, to you for hosting us. I, I wish I'd had someone record this podcast and send it to me and say, these are your failure modes, pay attention ahead of time. So I think building a community like you are with resources, with people who've done it before, experts coming on and talking about their failure modes, talking about what they did to succeed, uh, what they would have done differently. I think that's the best we can do for future medical device entrepreneurs is tell stories, build community, you know, network, meet people, because uh, chances are you're not that unique, right? Chances are you have the same problems that other people do. Um, and if you talk to them, they'll, they will share. People are very happy to share their stories. And uh, you could probably save a lot of money, time, headache uh, uh, if you listen. So I, I, I really think it's great what you're doing here. Um, and I, I hope I hope people avoid some failure modes uh, based on the based on the uh, content you're putting out and the, and the people you're hosting. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. And, and, and I think, you know, to, to add a little bit, um, that that's pretty much why I founded project BedTech originally, right. Was because I was having so many conversations with startup companies and people would say things and I'd say, Oh, you know what? I just talked to a company yesterday who's dealing with the same issue. Right. Or, oh, yeah, you know, that's a common thing. Here's here's how we've addressed it before. Or here's this resource. And then, you know, eventually it kind of just made sense to make a business out of it. So I, I really appreciate it. I mean, that is the main goal of, of, of our uh, of Project MedTech is to give back to the community and and, and and make it easier to take a product and innovative technologies to market. Um, 
Uh, Kevin, did you have anything to end on? I do, and it, I want it to be a recognition of of the role that Keith plays and the role that you play, uh, because I'm much more, and you probably heard this, I like dealing with products, I like dealing with users, but I think that there's an undervalued uh, side of networks, dealing with networks, because if you really think, you, you ask, like, how did Keith and I find the right people to run our companies, how do we find the right uh, uh, customer need to fill here? Almost all of it simply comes from conversations between people with similar interests, but different talents. So I just want to put a plug out there for anyone in the community, uh, and, and maybe with you, you join as, as a great example of this, connecting people of similar interests, but different talents. I think that's actually how you start building a product. That's how you start building a team. Um, and I think it's really an under-recognized thing on my side of the, on, on my side of the company. I think there's always a, a sort of idea of what do, you know, what do business development people do? Uh, and, and I just want to answer that, that from my perspective as, as an outsider of that community, literally building networks where people of different talents can push an interest forward that literally they, neither of them could have done without each other. It's such a basic, it's such a basic thing. Um, actually let me, let me get all uh, historical and, and, um, and, and a little bit nostalgic for a second. The very, very first startup contracts in, in history yeah. were these Venetian contracts between someone with a bit more money and a bit more experience and someone and a fresh sailor and it would be a partnership between two people one of them would fund an expedition the other one would would lead the expedition and i think that that was you know we talked about the foundations of capitalism uh, coming later with like the corporation i think about it starting with networks of people and i think that the venetian contract of two people with different capabilities but similar interests aligning really becomes a force multiplier on what you can do and and i really want to recognize that base of if you connect two people who have that, it, it really can go in, in directions that you, that you can't even predict or, or, or expect, uh, but that you can be excited about. So thanks so much, Dwayne, for what you guys do. Yeah, Kevin, I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, that kind of, you know, plug for the networking aspect of things, you know, to be totally candid, when I first got into the medical device space, especially as a, as a chemist, right? I had the exact same thought of, of, you know, why do we need business development, right? And then I got into my first business development role and, and all of a sudden, you know, things changed a little bit. And, and to be honest, that led directly to, to Project MedTech of, hey, you know, is there a way where I can take a lot of this network that I've built and, and open it up to startups at such an early phase? And, and that's why we've developed our, our media network side of the company. It's why we've developed our consulting and advisory piece of the company to, to, to help with those things. Um, and to be honest, the, 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 the uh, foundation of both of those companies is centered around network. So um, I think it's a good place to end it. Um, I, I, I really appreciate both of your time. Hang on for one more minute. We'll chat offline real quick here, but, but Keith, Kevin, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.